0: So, we're continuing on with Mark, uh, chapter 8, and commencing at verse 27. Entitled, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am. They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them, not to tell anyone about him. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him Aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it if for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their own soul? 37. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it, is, as it is written about him. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you all, It's great to see you all. For those of you who don't know, my name's Dav. I'm uh, the minister of the church, and I'll be preaching God's word this morning. And it is such a privilege, isn't it? to open God's word up together, to listen to his voice. And our hope and our prayer is that God would speak in the power of the Holy Spirit by the preaching of his word. So we're continuing with our series in the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 9, verses 2 to 13 this morning, and it's on page 1012 in the Church Bibles. 1012, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Jesus, the God of Moses, Elijah, and John the Baptist. You might be thinking, I can't really remember reading about John the Baptist in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. But he is there. We do read Moses' name, Elijah's name, but also John the Baptist is referred to as well. But let's begin by reading Mark chapter 8 verses 36 through to chapter 9, verse 3. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Through to chapter 9, verse 3. Let us hear God's word. Jesus said, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me, And my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, what does Jesus mean in verse 1 in mark chapter 9 verse 1 what does jesus mean when he says truly i tell you some who are standing here so some of you 12 apostles some of you will not taste death some of you will not die before you see that the kingdom of god has come with power what does it mean to see the kingdom of god and with power. What does that mean? Well, firstly, we need to know what the kingdom of God is. And that is huge, isn't it? That's a huge theme in the Bible, the kingdom of God. That word kingdom appears 160 times in the New Testament. And then the phrase kingdom of God Appears 67 times in the New Testament. So it's quite a big deal, isn't it? Especially in the Gospels. The Kingdom of God. When you read the New Testament, you can't escape that phrase, the Kingdom of God. So, what is it? Could we adequately explain the Kingdom of God to a non Christian? Could we adequately explain the Kingdom of God? To a new Christian, do we know what the kingdom of God is? Well, there's a lot to say about the kingdom of God. We could preach on it for about a year. We could do an epic series on the kingdom of God, couldn't we? Because there are several aspects to the kingdom of God. But this morning, I'm briefly going to mention four aspects of the kingdom of God. And first and foremost, the kingdom of God is Jesus. The kingdom of God is Jesus. What do we read in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21? Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus referring to himself. I am the kingdom of God. And I'm here in the middle of you. So where the king is, that's where the kingdom is. Where the king is, and the king of God's kingdom is Jesus. Where the king is, that's where the kingdom is. I remember hearing a minister being interviewed, a minister that was born in one part of the country and he was raised in another part of the country. And his ministry took him all over the country, his ministry took him all over the world. So he'd lived in many different parts of the country, lived in many different parts of the world. And someone asked him, so where would you consider home? Is it where you were born, where you were raised, where you currently lived? Where do you consider home? And his line is, and his line was, home is where my wife is. Wherever my wife is, that's where home is. If I'm doing ministry in India and I'm feeling homesick, it's where my wife is. Whatever part of the country we're living in, the home maker, so to speak, wherever she is, everything's right. <laughs> that's where I long to be, isn't it? And where Jesus is, there is the kingdom. So, first and foremost, the kingdom of God is Jesus. And I suppose another logical way of explaining the kingdom of God is to say, the kingdom of God is where God has rule and reign, isn't it? The kingdom of God is where he has rule and reign. I suppose if someone were to ask the question, what is the kingdom of Queen Elizabeth II? What is the kingdom of Queen Elizabeth II? It's where she has rule and reign, isn't it? The kingdom of Queen Elizabeth II is Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the Commonwealth countries Australia, Canada, to name just a few, isn't it? Queen Elizabeth II's throne, where's that? Her 1953 throne, it's in Windsor, isn't it? Not far from here. Her throne is in Windsor, but a kingdom is Wales, England, Scotland, Australia, Canada, Bahamas. Anyway, I'll stop there. But you get the message, don't you? God rules and reigns from heaven over the whole universe. God's throne is in heaven, but he rules and he reigns over the whole universe. So, secondly, and broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is his rule and reign from heaven over the whole universe. What do we read in Psalm 103, verse 19? The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all isn't that amazing nothing happens in the universe unless God allows it to happen a drop of rain will not land on this earth unless God says so everything is in his hand is in his control and that's not always easy to accept but God is in control He's never taken by surprise. Everything is planned. Yes, even the hard and painful things, the difficulties, the hardships, the tragedies, God's in control. He rules and he reigns over all. He rules and he reigns in heaven, in outer space, in this atmosphere, on this earth. But all the apostles would have known this, wouldn't they? They'd have known Psalm 103, verse 19. So knowing that God rules and reigns over the whole universe doesn't mean seeing the kingdom of God coming with power. So there's a third aspect to the kingdom of God. Suppose, thirdly and more narrowly, the kingdom of God is his spiritual rule and reign in the hearts and lives of his people, the church. So, the kingdom of God is God's people, the church, him ruling and reigning in our hearts and our lives. If people have heard the gospel, believe the gospel, repented of their sins, and maybe ordinarily then gone through the waters of baptism, they are members or citizens of God's kingdom. People who believe the gospel and have repented. What do we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14? The apostle Paul writing into the church in Colossae. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of Of the Son he loves, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I'd like to just stop there. Are you a member of God's kingdom? Are you a citizen of God's kingdom? Have you believed the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus died for you, rose for you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's son? Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned away from your sins? Have you changed your mind? I'm not going to believe those things anymore. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. He's my Lord and my Savior. I'm going to allow him to be king of my life. He's going to rule and reign in my heart and my life. And for us professing Christians here this morning, is it obvious to everyone that Jesus is king of our lives? When people look at us, do they say, you're just like me. No different to me really. We've all heard the phrase, haven't we? Oh we know who wears the trousers in that house. It's such an awkward phrase, isn't it? You feel Ooh. <laughs> whenever you hear someone say, Well, oh, it's clear who wears the trousers in that house. Have you heard someone say that? It's awkward, isn't it? But what should people be saying about Christians? Oh it's clear who rules and reigns in that house. That home, that family, they're run by Jesus. He's the king of that family. He's the king of that person's life. He rules and reigns in that home, in that person's heart and life. Is it clear for everyone to see who wears the trousers, so to speak, in our house? Is it clear to see that Jesus rules and reigns in our house? But again, the apostles would have seen people repent and believe, wouldn't they? And the apostles would see a lot of people repent and believe. They would see the church going global, wouldn't they? They'd see the church becoming international. So seeing the kingdom coming in power didn't mean seeing sort of conversions and the church going global. No, there's a fourth aspect to the kingdom of God. So how and when did the apostles see the kingdom of God come with power before they died? How did some of the apostles see the kingdom of God come in power before they died? Well, the fourth aspect to the kingdom of God is that he rules and reigns one day physically here on earth forever and ever as he does in heaven right now. The kingdom of God is God's future physical rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. What we read in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 17. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So one day, Jesus is going to return in his Father's glory with his angels and the souls of all the believers who are in heaven. And Jesus is going to raise the dead and the souls of the believers in heaven will be reunited with their resurrected, glorious bodies. And then Jesus is going to carry out the judgment And we will live forever and ever on earth. Where Jesus would have created a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. His throne will come down from heaven to earth. God will rule and reign physically here on earth as he does in heaven right now. It's the second coming. But none of the apostles saw that, did they, before they died. Nobody's seen that yet, have we? That's what we're all looking forward to. We're looking forward to Jesus returning in his Father's glory with all the angels, bringing the souls of believers with him. We're looking forward to the judgment, to the resurrection. We're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. So what was this kingdom of God coming with power that some of the apostles saw before they died? Well, what do we read in mark chapter 1 uh, mark chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 mark 9 verses 1 to 7 jesus said truly i tell you some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of god has come with power after 6 days jesus took peter james and john with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone there He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? Well, we're not told in Mark's gospel, but Luke's account of the transfiguration tells us what they were talking about. And we'll find out about that a little bit later. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Wow. that's quite something, isn't it? So Peter, James, and John Saw the kingdom of God come with power in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. That is seeing the kingdom of God coming with power before they died. So Peter, James, and John had a little sneak preview of the second coming, didn't they? They saw what Jesus would look like when he comes again. And they were also taught that when Jesus comes a second time, he would bring the souls of the believers in heaven with him, like Moses and Elijah. And they also heard the voice of God the Father. They had a little sneak preview of the second coming. I suppose the question we're all thinking about is, why Moses and Elijah? Why did Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain? Why not the souls of some other believers in heaven? Why not the souls of Enoch or Abraham or David? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus had been trying to teach his apostles why he had come. But they were having sort of none of it, were they? Do you remember that? Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, where Jesus is trying to explain why he's come, what his mission is. Mark eight thirty-one to 32. He then, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Uh, Well, according to uh, the great preacher, uh, J.C. Ryle, that's something he brings out. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, who wrote the law, he symbolizes the law. Moses symbolizes the law. And then Elijah, one of the most... Powerful and famous of the prophets, Old Testament prophets. He symbolizes the prophets. And what was the main message of the law and the prophets? What was the main message of Moses and the prophets? Well, what do we read in Luke 24? This is 25 to 27. Jesus explaining what the message of the law and the prophets was. What the message of Moses and the prophet was. He said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And verse 44 and 46 Brings out the same truth as well. Luke twenty four forty four to 46. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Then he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So even on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is still trying to get his apostles to understand that he must suffer, die, and rise again. So what does Jesus do? Well, he effectively calls down the experts, is not he? Moses and Elijah. I said, well, these two know exactly what my mission is. Moses and Elijah, they know exactly why I've come. They know that I've come to suffer, die, and rise again. Because that's what they talked about. Remember, we were thinking, what on earth did they have a chat about? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Well, they were talking about the cross. That's what Luke says Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? They were talking about Jesus' death, resurrection, and even his ascension, isn't it? Going up, isn't it? Up to heaven, his departure. But there's a second reason, I believe, why Moses and Elijah, in particular, appeared on the mountain. Still in the context of, Mark chapter 8 and 9. So in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, Jesus taught what is involved in following him. Jesus taught about what's involved in following him. What do we read there? Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it And Moses and Elijah are a perfect example, aren't they, of a life of suffering and sacrifice for Christ? Moses and Elijah. I suppose if you had to pick two, if you had to pick two Old Testament characters who suffered for Christ, who would you choose? It'll probably be Moses and Elijah, wouldn't it? What we read in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward, and maybe we should ask the the question of ourselves now this morning: What sinful pleasures and earthly treasures have we given up in order to be better followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's quite a thought, isn't it? What sinful pleasures and earthly treasures have we sacrificed? so we could be better followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know. We might be thinking, well, I've I've probably got even more sinful pleasures now. I've probably even got more earthly treasures than when I was a non-Christian. Well, that's a sad case of affairs, isn't it? We need to ask for God's grace. We need to plead for God's grace. God give me help, isn't it, to say no to worldly pleasures. And to sin. To turn my back on that. And then what about Elijah? How did he suffer for Christ? What do we read in 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 14? This is Elijah speaking. That great Old Testament prophet. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. Torn down your altars. And put your prophets to death with a sword. And the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I suppose the question for us then is, when was the last time we experienced hostility for following Jesus? We might be thinking, oh, it's been days, weeks, months, years. I mean, it's never happened to me. Are we faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ if we experience no hostility at all? if nobody laughs at us for following Jesus, if nobody lies about us for following Jesus, if nobody hates us for following Jesus, are we really being faithful followers if we never experience that? So Moses and Elijah in particular appeared on the mountain to sort of reinforce Jesus' message that he would suffer, die, and rise again. Because that's Moses and Elijah's message. Jesus is suffering, death, and resurrection. And Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain to reinforce Jesus' message that to follow Jesus involves suffering and sacrifice. Sometimes it does involve suffering and sacrifice to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about um, verses 5 and 6? back in Mark chapter 9. I think this is an example of how far the disciples are from the kingdom of God, even now, that they're still not really there yet, are they? We really see their sort of blindness here, that they still haven't got full spiritual life. Mark chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. I don't know about you, but verse 6 is a bit weird. Don't you think that? He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Actually, Peter's saying a lot, isn't he? He's gibbering quite a bit is isn't he? I I love the way the New Living Translation translates verse 6. He said this because they didn't really know what else to say. <laughs> For they were terrified. Have you ever seen that? When someone is frightened, they start talking nonsense, don't they? They start sort of confessing things. I remember when I was in the car with someone, and we almost died in the car, and my friend, you're saying, Oh, God, help! My mother never loved me! And you saying all the... <laughs> He was so frightened, he just blurted out the weirdest things that came into his head. And I was just quiet thinking, oh, I'm going to die. (laughs) I think this is what's going on here with Peter, isn't it? You're like, Peter, shut up, isn't it? Just shh, isn't it? Stop talking rubbish. It, It kind of goes to show his heart, isn't it? Sometimes when people are put in certain situations, what's really on their heart just boils out, isn't it? Sometimes when someone really loses the plot with you, when you get into an argument, maybe with your wife, this has never happened to us, by the way, but sometimes when you get into an argument and it all comes out, all right, so that's what you really think about me, isn't it? Sometimes it all comes to the surface, isn't it, when someone gets really intense and emotional, isn't it? So we really see how sinful and selfish Peter's heart is. What does he say? Well, it's good for us to be here. Isn't this great for us? It's like, oh, Peter, what about the others? What about a lost and dying world? And sometimes we can slip into that, isn't it? It's nice for us to be together this morning, isn't it? Isn't this nice, what we're doing here this morning? But what about the other 8,000 people living in Binfield? What about the other thousands and thousands of people living in Bracknell and the surrounding areas? There are thousands of people this morning who are missing out on worship because they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We should never say, oh, it's good for us to be here. Yeah, it is good for us to be here, but what about a lost and dying world? What about the people who are missing out on worship this morning? He's a bit selfish there, isn't he, Peter? And then what does he say in the second half of verse 5? Let's put up three shelters, one for you one for Moses, one for Elijah. What is Peter doing there? He's basically saying, well, Jesus, you're you're basically just like one of them, aren't you? You're just the same as Moses, and you're the same as Elijah. You're on par with Moses and Elijah. You just deserve a shelter the same as them. Nothing more special Jesus isn't equal to Moses and Elijah. He? He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the prophets. And it's no surprise that the Father has to sort of interrupt you. You can almost imagine the Father in heaven saying, What is going on here with people? Right, I need to say something here. Now is the time to say something. And it's incredible, isn't it? Mark chapter 9, verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them so that they wouldn't see the Father. And die. A voice came from the cloud. This is my son. He's not just a prophet. This is my son. The eternal son of God the Father. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He's basically saying, shut up. Listen to him. And that's such a powerful word, isn't it? Listen to Jesus. Because there are so many voices in the world, particularly today, I think. Isn't it education, the media, politics, our friends? So many people are trying to influence us today, aren't they? This is how you should behave. This is how you should think. This is what you're supposed to believe about marriage. This is what you're supposed to believe about the home. This is what you're supposed to believe about this, that, and the other. So much pressure on us, isn't it? Do you find that? All these voices... But ultimately, there's only one voice we should listen to, and that's the voice of Jesus, isn't it? Listen to him. Well, what has Jesus got to say about family, education, the home, marriage, isn't it? What's he got to say about real peace, real joy? Listen to him. And the Father's saying that, listen to Jesus... At this point, because the apostles haven't really been listening to Jesus, they've been sort of correcting Jesus and interrupting him and sort of rebuking him. It was such perfect timing, wasn't it, from the Father. You've got to start listening to him. When Jesus says he's going to suffer, die, and rise again, you need to listen to him. When Jesus says the following him demands sacrifice and suffering, you need to listen to him. What about verses 8 and 9 then? Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And that's strange, isn't it? Why did Jesus say that? He said, Don't tell anyone about this. Are you serious? We're not allowed to tell anyone that we've just seen Moses and Elijah and that we saw you transfigured. Why did Jesus tell them not to tell anyone about that? Well, I think verse 10 is the answer, isn't it? They kept the matter to themselves. Well, fair play for them for doing that. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. No wonder Jesus told them, keep the matter to yourself, because you haven't got a clue yet of who, why I've come. You don't understand that I have to die and rise again yet, do you? So don't go spreading this news about, because you're just going to confuse people. You don't understand my mission yet. You haven't fully grasped what my mission is. And then what do we read in verse 11 as we come towards the end? And when they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? So they're a bit confused here, aren't they? Peter, James, and John. They're a bit confused. They're thinking, right, we've just seen Elijah, but surely the second coming of Elijah has to happen before the Messiah comes. And if you are the Messiah, Elijah's sort of come after you. So they're a bit confused, aren't they? We've just seen Elijah. Isn't he supposed to come before you? look what Jesus says then, verses 12 and 13. He clears it all up, doesn't he? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first. Yeah, he is. Elijah is supposed to come before me, the Messiah. Like the second coming of Elijah is supposed to happen before I come. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So the Old Testament prophecy of Elijah's second coming had happened. When did that happen? Well, What do we read in Matthew 11, verses 11 to 14? Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of woman there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if we are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So again, Jesus seems to be coming back to this subject of suffering and sacrifice for being one of his followers. John the Baptist was that sort of second coming of Elijah, this Elijah-type figure. He is the one who did fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that Elijah must come before the Messiah, the Son of God. And what happened to John the Baptist? Well, he suffered for following Jesus, didn't he? In the same way as Moses and Elijah suffered for following Christ. Again, it's coming back to the subject of suffering and sacrifice for following Jesus. That's even there, isn't it? In the account of the Transfiguration. I don't know how many of you have heard of the organization Open Doors. But this year, they published figures that 245 million Christians worldwide are facing severe persecution. What does that mean, severe persecution? That's a lot, I think. 245 million. And apparently 80% of all religious persecution in the world is targeted at Christians. So Christians are the most persecuted group on planet Earth. Should we be surprised at that? That 245 million Christians are being persecuted severely today? And that 80% of all religious persecution in the world is targeted at Christians? We shouldn't be surprised, should we? We shouldn't be surprised. The call to follow Jesus... Sometimes does involve suffering and sacrifice. People will laugh at us. Some people might hate us. Some people might lie about us. So in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, we see those three big questions answered again, don't we? Do you remember those questions? Who is Jesus? Well, the answer is clear in verse 7. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God, isn't he? The son whom he loves. And he calls us to listen to him. And why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus came to suffer and die as a sacrifice for our sins and to be raised from the dead to give us new life. That was the message of the Old Testament prophets, wasn't it? That's what Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about on the mountain of transfiguration. And then, thirdly and lastly, what is involved in following Jesus? Well, first and foremost, listening to him. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to listen to him. Following Jesus will also involve suffering and sacrifice, just as Moses suffered, just as Elijah suffered, and just as John the Baptist suffered. But there is great peace and comfort to be had, even in suffering. Great grace and peace from our generous God. Let's respond to God's words in prayer. Let's worship God in prayer. And uh, I wonder, Dave, would you mind praying first? And then it's open uh, for a few others to pray. Uh, but please feel free to pray quietly and silently in your own heart and mind. And maybe if you're not a believer here this morning, maybe now could be the time for you to cry out. Jesus, I want to believe in you. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for me and rose for me. I want to repent of my sins. I want to follow you with all my heart, no matter what the cost.